0: Let's turn to the Lord in prayer as we open let me tell you what we're going to do first um, we're going to do the first I don't know maybe 15 or 20 minutes will be a little bit academic I, I don't want to do that but it's really necessary for where we're going and I think for the for the type of scripture we're looking at it's pretty important it's it's more just teaching on how do you deal with wisdom literature And then we're gonna jump into a passage in Proverbs that the Lord has used in my heart and draw some principles out of Proverbs for what does the Lord really require of us? So that's where we're headed. Join me in prayer as we begin to do that. Father, your word is our nourishment. We don't live by food alone but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Lord, would you allow your word to speak this morning? Would it be the focus? And would the true meaning of your intent be what we hear and what we apply? Lord, help me to speak as you would want it spoken. And Lord, thank you for the hearts that are prepared to receive it, And prepared in their relationship with you to contemplate being doers of the word and not hearers only. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you. I spoke a few weeks ago and I began mentioning that I was a business major in college, uh, marketing and international business to be specific, and although I passed no surprise. I actually passed with better than average grades, but the schooling and the, the classes and the studies were actually a back seat for probably four to five years during that period of time. So God was gracious with the studies in Tallahassee, for those of you that uh, are familiar with Florida State. God had regenerated my heart when I was 17. And I met a believer that challenged me in orientation as a, I was still 17, in orientation as a freshman, he asked me if I uh, if I knew my eternal destiny, if I knew whether I would be going to heaven or hell. So, said, well, you know, I'd been raised in a Baptist church, but I told him I, I really don't think a person can have that kind of assurance. You know, real confident freshman. And he, you know, very patiently opened Scripture to first... He didn't answer from his own words. He turned to 1 John 5 that says, these things were written that you might know that you have eternal life. And this, this huge sword comes flying out of the side and hits me in the side. and Okay, I've just been rebuked. And it wasn't this guy trying to rebuke me. He just wanted to teach me. So the Lord got my attention. And the majority of the next four to five years... My time, my energy, my focus was given to growing in the faith, the knowledge of scripture, battling the sinful flesh that weighs it down and challenges anybody who would desire to grow in their obedience and knowledge and love for the Lord. Somewhere around my third year, I had taken a few days um, away from the campus to just ponder I had been growing in the Lord. Here I am now, 21 or 20 years old or so. Uh, and I just, I had a number of questions. I wasn't sure about my major. I, was at, I wanted the Lord to tell me what I needed to major in. Um, I kind of wanted to know what life was going to have in store. Was I going to be a missionary? What, what are you, where are you going to take me? I, um, I had been challenged. Well, before that, I'll just say I had also, in addition to studies, I had put girls on the back burner for a 17 to 20-year-old. That's a big deal. But... Uh, I'd heard this song that says, What do you get when you fall in love? You get enough germs to catch pneumonia. So, no. Uh, so I followed and heeded the lyrics of, No, that was Karen Carpenter. That's not. Actually, a brother in Christ had challenged me would I consider not being distracted for a period of time in college and devote myself to the Lord, to study and fellowship and teaching? And so I did that. I didn't date for over three years, three to four years, I guess. Actually, when I met Terry was the first date I had after that. But I was taking this three days, I wanted to know what job I was gonna have, what major, how it would work itself out, whether I would be in full-time ministry, who and when I might marry. During that time, God used a particular passage, happens to be in wisdom literature, it was in Proverbs, to answer my questions and give me direction but neither the passage that he took me to nor the instruction was what I had expected. It was a passage in Proverbs, as I says, that that God brought alive to me. You've had that happen in ways that only he, your wonderful counselor can do where you're in scripture and all of a sudden the the words get big and it's as if his voice is saying, this is for you. And the rest of the world, the rest of Christendom could not even be involved. It doesn't matter. God's talking to me, and He's got instruction for me. That was that experience. And um, we're going to look at that passage a little bit later uh, in the sermon. First, however, I wanted to do this brief introduction of the concept of wisdom literature. What is it? Why, um, Why is it in Scripture? Do we approach it any differently than the rest of Scripture? They're all inspired. It's the whole counsel of God, so how do I deal with them? Uh, So we'll look at wisdom literature in general and then look specifically at the passage in Scripture that we have that are titled wisdom literature. As I said, it might be just a touch academic, but I'm gonna fly through it, so bear with me. I think it'll be very helpful. I'm not just doing this for academic reasons or anything. I think it's very helpful to understand When I go to Proverbs or I go to Ecclesiastes, by the way, there's five books that are considered wisdom literature in scripture. It's Job, Psalms, Proverbs, uh, Song of Solomon, and Ecclesiastes. And we're gonna spend and focus our time in Proverbs, but I wanna talk about wisdom literature. So it was, there was no media. We are so saturated with media. And it's been here, it, it, it seems to us it's been forever, it has not. There was no Pony Express. There was no telegraph. This goes way back. Wisdom literature, wisdom began right from early times of Egypt, 2,500 to 2,000 various proverbs and wise sayings. It was usually the written down sayings of wise sages, wise men and women who have lived life and experienced life and gathered their successes and their failures and how they got there. And it was those writings that made up this genre called wisdom literature. And they got passed down verbally. Some got written down. It was popular, by the way, 2500 to 2000, it was about 2000 that Abraham got called out of Chaldee and made his way following the Lord over into what we know of now as Northern Israel and then on down into Israel. So that was about 2000. So Abraham would have been exposed to wisdom literature but it continued not just in Egypt, southwest of Israel, but it was the popular um, genre of literature that took place in Mesopotamia, in the Tigris-Euphrates and where, where Abraham originated from, east of Israel, all the way through their predominance, we see it all the way from 1500 to 1000. 1000 BC, we're talking about David, King David was alive, over the millennial, as was Solomon. So David and Solomon, their psalms and their proverbs would have been recorded as what we call as wisdom literature. We've got some everything from little pithy statements of truth to Job is not pithy statements of truth, but but there's some differences in characteristics, and I want to hit a few of the characteristics between... um, Between other scriptures and what we call wisdom literature, they set forth qualities needed and dangers to be avoided by people seeking to please God and have a relationship with Him. Now, this is wisdom literature in scripture. They usually deal with people, not with theology, not with the history of Israel, not with moral law. It's really the experiences of people and what people have learned in in their own experiences that are written down, they're applicable to all people of all periods in history who face similar types of perils and have similar characteristics and abilities. They're almost always based on three things, respect for authority, traditional values and teachings, and the wisdom of the mature, the experienced men and women. They are always immensely practical, giving sound advice for developing personal qualities necessary for success in life and avoiding failure and shame. Proclaiming that virtue is rewarded by prosperity and well-being and warning that vice leads to poverty and disaster. Now when we turn to Proverbs, and we'll do that in a moment, there's some pitfalls with wisdom literature to avoid. There's three I'm going to highlight, but I'll touch on, I don't know, five or six, just briefly, and that will end our academic part of this thing. So, you know most of these, you've seen them, you may have even been guilty of some of them. Just because it is particularly practical writings or stories, it is wrong to conclude, obviously, that it is somehow a secular book or secular teaching. All of its teachings are solidly, based on the fear of the Lord. Solomon began Proverbs in chapter one, verse seven. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So in contrast to literature outside of the Bible, the Bible's literature, having been inspired, has specific, it gives it a whole new dimension. What does it really mean? that when Solomon in his wisdom shares principles of life, those divinely inspired words reflects God's intended principles for life. So when Solomon is giving advice to his son, and in the first seven chapters of Proverbs, he says, my son, 14 times. When he's giving advice to his son, we can appropriately view this as the Lord's guidance and advice for life in general. God's will is being communicated through these inspired writers. As described by one expositor and commentator, I quote, Therefore, whatever the Spirit of God inspired the ancient writers to include became part of the Word of the Lord. Such inclusions then took on a new and greater meaning when they formed part of Scripture. In a word, they became authoritative and binding, part of the communication of the divine will. So when we open up Proverbs chapter 4, it's not just a wise man speaking to his son this is the lord speaking to you and i, I and mean, it's appropriate to view it that way second pitfall when re- reading or studying principles in wisdom literature is to take a, all proverb statements literally we must take care in interpreting proverbs they present general truth that is often not intended to be taken literally nor do they state everything that there is to know about a given truth. They're usually very short, and they make one statement. For instance, Proverbs twenty-two twenty-nine 29 says, do you see a man skilled in his work? He will serve before the king. Okay? So am I to conclude that there any skilled worker that is skilled at his trade is gonna be serving before the king? Obviously not. Common sense tells us that, yet, Many many skilled men work outside of the authority structure, whether it's king or government structure. They don't serve before kings. So what is the proverb actually communicating? So we stop and take and we recognize that the principle to take away is that any person who diligently applies their hand to master a skill will tend to be recognized and rewarded for it, that it's a good thing. Our New Testament, New Testament equivalent might be Colossians 3, which says, And whatever you do, do it heartily to the Lord and not to men, knowing that of the Lord you will receive a reward of inheritance, for you serve the Lord Jesus. You know, we have a lot of English proverbs that fit into this literal category. You know them. An apple a day keeps the doctor away, right? Well, no, not necessarily. So what is it trying to say? Obviously that a decent diet, paying attention to a good healthy diet, has good healthy effects. That's the principle, right? But there's, it's, it's obviously not literal. We know that. And it doesn't tell us everything that if I go decide to eat a, a bunch of green apples a day, it might send me to the doctor. Consider another one, look before you leap, right? Question, if I leap once without looking, and I'm fine, no pain, no broken bones, no negative consequences, can I disregard the statement? Have I proven it wrong? Obviously not. It's a principle of truth. It's foolish to think that way. It's communicating that it is wise to consider the outcome of your actions. Counting the cost, considering the results, is a good practice. It's prudent to move through life that way. Third pitfall to avoid. This mistake has been made by many, and this is not the only, but there's there's one good one, and that is that they are general statements of truth, not promises. Rather than being thought of as exacting promises, we should really understand them as general guidelines for living successful and God-honoring and God-pleasing life. You all know Proverbs 22:26, or 22:6. If you're a parent, even if you're not, you've you've seen it and quoted it. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Is that a promise? If so, there's a number of broken-hearted parents whose children grew up abandoned. The Lord abandoned Christianity altogether. So do we throw it out and say God's a liar? Of course not. God is not a liar. So what is it? Oh, it's the parents' fault. No. How much guilt is laid on parents and how much grief has been shared because it's not like our own guilt doesn't do us enough harm that people would also blame parents for that. Not that we don't need to take a good look and examine our parenting skills and lie, that lay them before the Lord and even confess mistakes that we've made. But it's not the parent's fault for the decisions of the child as they grow up. I've kicked myself uh, in the past, this was at least in parenting years ago, I disciplined out of anger several times. Well, I'm sure you've never done that. I actually threw a seven-year-old across the room. Um, It's not funny. It was John David, and he's the eldest. And the eldest is guilty for everything that takes place in the house, right? Before I ever hear the, before I ever hear the uh, story, he's guilty, and so I executed judgment. What a, what a, painful, thought even to think about it now, it brings tears to my eyes. That I would exercise a dad's will like that. It was a a ride to seminary when he was 22 or three, I don't know, on his way out. We drove to California, and uh, we had lots of hours to talk. And we brought this event up and talked through it. He had not forgotten about it, not in the least and uh, I had a wonderful opportunity to confess my sin and uh, and see the forgiveness of the Lord through through my son and I'm sure it was healing for him too goodness I can't see any notes <clears throat> if I have any advice from a humble father be real be honest be appropriately transparent With your children, confess your faults. Let them see the Lord grant you forgiveness. There will come a time they need it and they will want it. And if they've seen it, they'll know what it looks like. A couple of other guidelines for (laughs) pitfalls to avoid, and I'm just going to, there's three more, but we're not going to spend near as much time on them. We kind of touched on this. They're not intended to be technically accurate or exact. Proverbs 6, 27 through 29 says, Can a man scoop fire into his lap without being burned? Can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched? Rhetorical answer, no. So is he who sleeps with another man's wife. Listen to the end of it, though. No one who touches her will go unpunished. It's not to be technically exact so if i accidentally brush up another brush up against another woman and touch her am i going to be punished of course not we kind of know that in our head but this is a good example that there's language that's used like touching her it's figurative expresses things suggestively rather than in detail the point is clear though committing adultery is like playing with fire Proverbs must also be culturally translated in today's meaning. We talked about the king. Um, We don't have a king, so what do we do? He He who loves a pure heart and whose speech is gracious will have the king for his friend. I don't know a king, much less one that would be my friend, but it's true for those in authority. It also often relies heavily on imagery in order to be memorable. A wise king winnows out the wicked. He drives the threshing wheel over them. Have you ever seen a threshing wheel or a threshing sled? I doubt it. Some of you have. It's a pretty awful device. I mean, it it tears up the straw and the wheat to get the seeds to fall out. Excuse me. So in this proverb, we look at it and hear it, even if capital punishment was an acceptable part of the law, putting a wicked man under the threshing wheel or under a threshing sled would be pretty awful punishment. So it's it's intended to paint a picture that you will remember oftentimes. We could use that wisdom in that proverb in today's culture here in the United States, couldn't we? That the wise king will winnow out the wicked and punish them? That's wisdom for today. Okay, so I want to look at Solomon's wisdom, then we'll turn to Proverbs. So open up to 1 Kings 3. We know that Solomon had received an extremely special gift of wisdom from God directly in response to a very selfish request. That Solomon made to God, God answered Solomon. God told him to, what would he have as the leader of Israel? And in a selfless way, let's just read two verses, 1 Kings 3, 11 and 12. And God said to him, because you have asked this, and have not asked for yourself a long life of riches or or for the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, Behold, I will do, I do now according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that, listen to this, none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. Solomon's wisdom was unmatched. I think if we lived around Jerusalem or even the outskirts, we would would seek to... There's no Twitter. I can't get on his podcast. I can't turn him on the radio station. But I would try to find a way to listen to Solomon. He was given tremendously special discernment, wisdom, and knowledge and began living it out. God-given insight. We would be awed by his knowledge, the breadth of his knowledge, his understanding, his discernment. The fame, therefore, began to spread everywhere of his wisdom throughout all Israel and beyond. And like I said, there was no, there was no quick broadcast. There was no radio, no TV, no podcast, no Facebook, no Twitter, no, not even a regional newspaper. The fame of Solomon spread all the same. Just look down to verse 28 of chapter 3. And all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. And then just a chapter over, chapter 4, 29 to 34, gives us a little more insight into the fame and the spreading of Solomon's wisdom and the depth of it. And God gave Solomon, this is verse 29 to 34, and God gave Solomon... Wisdom and understanding beyond measure, and breadth in mind like the sand of the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all other men, wiser than, and then he, it's name dropping, that doesn't mean much to us. Ethan the Ezrahite and Heman, Calchul, Darda, and sons of Mahal, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs. His songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees from the cedar that was in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds, of reptiles and of fish. And people of all nations of all nations, came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. He had penned seven, excuse me, he had penned thousands of Proverbs. And in the first seven chapters of the book of Proverbs, we have him addressing his instruction to his son no less than 13 times. Rehoboam, Rehoboam we know, was his son that took over when he died. I'm assuming that's who it is, although I'm sure he had several sons. But he persisted in these first chapters to make an appeal to the young person, to, this, to his son, to listen to his teaching and take heed to his instruction. And he makes clear that from the beginning, as I said, it's more than educational or intellectual exercise. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We could go multiple places to see how within Solomon's wisdom, the knowledge of God was tucked throughout it. So it's one of these passages appealing to his son that I wanted to take the rest of the time and and open up. So turn to Proverbs chapter four, if you would. When I took those three days, I was looking for a map for the path of my life. Wanted to see where I was going and what I was supposed to do and instead God gave me a recipe. I wanted future answers and God only gave me light for today's choices. Let's read verses 20 to 27 together of Proverbs chapter 4. Just follow along. I'll read it. And we're going to then draw some guiding principles as we look at at these eight verses. My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. So in the first three verses, verse 20, 21, and 22, we have a call, a command, and a comment. Let's look at each of those. The first one is a call. My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. We know from Ecclesiastes that Solomon had lived and learned a number of hard lessons and experiences of his life he longed that he might prevent them in his son it makes sense he didn't want him to make the same mistakes we've all felt this way if whether it's children or or others that we love they could avoid the poor choices the ungodly decisions and directions, the poor responses to unexpected circumstances and trials. In short, they could honor the Lord and walk pleasing to Him without having to go through the muck. Unfortunately, the English proverb that we know is more apt for Solomon's situation. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. Solomon would like to have Rehoboam not just listen and incline his ear to what he has to say, but to apply it to his heart, to live it out. As parents, we obviously should seek to instruct our children in the way of the Lord, to demonstrate through personal life how to walk the walk. But as you know, we cannot force them to listen or heed instruction. They will grow up, and they will make personal choices about what path they will take. As an early 20s guy during those days, this passage let me know that, and I, I, I didn't know it, but I wanted to please God. I wanted to draw close to Him. I wanted to gain His wisdom. I knew that wisdom originated from submitting my will to His. In retrospect, and we sang it this morning, I learned that men do not seek after God apart from His Spirit and His calling. My desire to please God came from only one place and it didn't come from within me. In verse 20, I was to be attentive to all of his words, not just Solomon's, but the whole counsel of God. Incline my ear to the full counsel. And that is his call to you and his call to me is to bend our ear to what he has to say. Second in verse 21 is a command. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them in the midst of your heart. It's imperative. Here the call turns more intense. I, don't, I not only need to just bend my ear to, to listen, and the implication is not just listening. If I'm inclining my ear, I'm inclining it to do it. I'm intending to obey, but I'm still inclining my ear here. It's more intent. I'm, I'm to make it my preoccupation. Don't let them escape from your sight. That's kind of crazy. Keep them within your heart. I am to ensure they're ever before me, and I'm to keep them in my heart. Sounds a bit radical, really? Psalm 1, the blessed man's delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law. He meditates every now and then, a few days a week. Somebody correct me. Day and night. Jesus in John 14 said, Unless you abide in my word, you cannot be my disciple. What does it mean to abide? It's to live in, to dwell with. Similarly, Colossians 3:16, Paul told the Colossians to let the word of Christ richly dwell within them. The idea of abiding and dwelling. It's the place we always revert to, the place we're at home. As far as having it in your heart, we all know, and many have memorized Psalm 119, 9, 10, and 11. How can a young man keep his way pure? By taking heed, I memorized it in King James, so you'll have to bear with it. By taking heed thereto according to thy word, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. We've been doing that with the kids in Sunday school, hiding God's word in their heart, treasuring it with the goal that they might obey Him and not sin. I understood through this verse that God was calling me to a steady, ever-deepening, ever-growing knowledge of His Word, includes hearing it, reading it, studying it, memorizing it, and none of which without meditating on it, taking it from my ears, from my eyes, and thinking about it. How does it apply to life? Drilling it with questions so I understand what is God saying? all with a heart to submit to it by his grace and his strength. So there's a call, a command, and in verse 22, a comment or a principle. For they are life to those that find them and health or healing to all their flesh. It's a regular theme of of Proverbs from Solomon and other places that both quality of life and length of life are enhanced by paying heed to the book's wisdom. We all buy new things, we get a new appliance or a new car and it always comes with an instruction book. Of course, you're like me and guys say, I don't need no stinking instruction book. I can do this without it. But we all know that the manufacturer knows best. He designed it to be used a certain way, to be cared for a certain way, to follow. In fact, a lot of time the warranties are even tied to compliance with the instructions. human body is far more complex than any man-made machine. The maker himself has sent instructions for a good long life. These instructions are found in the word of God. Happy is the person who heeds them, foolish is the one who does not. 2 Peter 1, 3 is a promise. His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us. In the final verses of this passage, Solomon uses parts of the body to touch on what it is that really makes up a man or a woman. They all point to the inner man or the inner woman. So let's look at them. Verse 23 is our heart. Keep your heart with all vigilance for from it flows the springs of life. I keep trying to say diligence because that's why I memorized it. Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Above all, we are to guard our heart. It's a symbol of our hidden inner person, our inner life, the source of all of our behavior. It's our thoughts, our will, our emotion. It's what makes us up that nobody else can see. Psalm 24, 3 and 4 link A clean heart and pure hands. It's not accidental because we do what we do because we are what we are. Jesus said that the things that proceed out of the mouth, that come forth from the heart, these are the things that defile a man. The argument was with the Pharisees over eating bread and things that go into a man. And he said, no, what defiles a man is what comes out from the inside. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murder, adultery, fornications, deaths, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. It's no wonder we need a new heart. The natural human heart, according to Jeremiah, is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Lest you read that list and think, oh, well, that's not me. The root of sin in the heart of an unredeemed person and in your own heart, residing in your flesh, you have a new heart according to Jeremiah, if you know the Lord. But it's that heart that is desperately wicked that we need to have cleansed. David, you, you know the passage. David, after sinning and recognizes his own sin, asks the Lord to create in him a clean heart. Our prayer this morning is, Lord, cleanse our hearts. Give us a cleansed heart. Secondly, so it's our heart, then our lips, which obviously symbolizes our words in verse 24. Put away from you crooked speech and devious talk far from you. Put devious talk far from you. James indicates that Anyone who can control the tongue can control the entire body. Although it may be difficult to control all speech, certainly we can control foul words. You do know that you choose what comes out of your mouth, right? As I do. There's times I want to take it back, but it was by my own will that they made it out. It wasn't an accident. That came from the inside. Lord, give us a gracious tongue. Jesus says that we will give an account for every word, every idle word that we speak. We would do well to submit the utterances that we want to make first to the Lord for approval before we spew unnecessary words. James has all sorts of analogies in chapter 3 of James, but how can a fountain bring forth both bitter water and sweet? You could watch my marriage and ask the same thing at times. How can this guy say such wonderful things to this lady and at another time say something that's hurtful? That doesn't make sense. Give us gracious tongue. Third is our eyes, verse 25. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. A great deal of temptation comes through the eyes. Not to look at something provocative or appealing to the flesh takes considerable discipline. You will recall Satan's first strategy with mankind in the garden. It was to persuade Eve just to take a look. Success. How desirable it looked. The longer she looked, the more her desire grew. The longer she looked, the more difficult it was to tear her eyes away. Soon she lost all sense of proportion, forgot about her husband, forgot about God's warning for sure and certain judgment. The tree and its fruit was all she could focus on. It's all she could see. And the look became a lust when the woman, this is the quote, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise. Why would I not eat of it? We can understand the story because that longing look lies in each one of us. We've seen the bitter experiences of not having a single focus. That's our prayer. Lord, give us a single focus on eternal things. Fourth is our feet or our path. Verse 26 and 27. Ponder the path of your feet. Then all your ways will be sure. Don't swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot from evil. Turn your foot away from evil. God advises a planned walk. Consider the outcome of your choices and actions. Stay on the path. You know what is right. Don't wander aimlessly and don't be lured off of it. We seem prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, right? We know the path, but we don't have a single eye, and we look where we shouldn't look, and we are not focused and preoccupied with what we ought to be preoccupied with, and it's appealing enough to stray. And there are other paths we should avoid altogether. Some doors and places that we should never go, or doors that we should never darken. You know, consider, you you know the story well, Abraham and Lot, right? Their herdsmen started quarreling because there wasn't enough good grass for both families. And so Abraham says, Look, choose where you're going to go, and and I'll figure out where the Lord's going to lead me. And it's telling in Genesis 13 their decisions. Lot pitched his tent, and Abraham removed his tent. Lot's of feet took him straight to Sodom, where there was green grass in abundance. But it's where he lost everything and almost his own soul. Very little pondering of his path, that of his feet, took place. No seeking Abe's counsel, at least. Hey, you might want to avoid Sodom. It didn't I don't know how anybody could have lived anywhere in that part of the world without knowing that Sodom's reputation was the homosexual capital of the world. And Abraham's feet took him to remove his tent and head the other direction. There was probably enough green grass for both of them in Sodom, but that wasn't an option. God's instruction here is obvious. Be careful in life to think about our choices. Submit them to the wisdom of Scripture and the counsel of godly brothers and sisters. Solomon had just provided in chapter 3 of Proverbs the verses you know, trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him. He will make your paths straight. Lord, give us light for our path today. One last sobering story as we, as we close is in 1 Kings 2. If you still have your finger in 1 Kings 2, follow along, you can flip to it. It's the beginning of chapter 2. We're going to read just the first four verses. It was time for David to depart. He was dying. And he called Solomon in and he had some things to say to Solomon. By the way, Solomon here was 19 or 20 years old. He was not very old when he took the throne. When David's time drew... This is chapter 2, verse 1 of 1 Kings. When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon his son, saying, I am about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong. Show yourself a man. And keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying... Now, this is the Lord's word to David. If your sons pay a close attention to their way to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Wow. David's dying and he wants Solomon to know what God had said about Solomon. You know the end of the story, as Paul Harvey would say, right? And it's not great. We've got Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. I mean, the story of Solomon is not roses. He did not pay attention all the days of his life. He did not walk before God in faithfulness all those days. Although we believe he returned to the Lord at the end of his life, they had lost the united Israel. So what came of his son? the son of the wisest man to walk the earth. The stories of Rehoboam, who did rule the southern two tribes for many years, are smattered with poor choices and giving bad advice, seeking and getting bad advice and following it. Exposure alone to the truth does nothing to your heart. You can sit in church, you can listen to a thousand sermons, Exposure alone to the truth doesn't cut it. Let's pray. Lord, may we respond to your call, to your command, to abide in your word. Strengthen us in your word that we might resist temptation and that that appeals to our flesh. Lord, cleanse our hearts by the washing of the blood of Jesus over our sins, that we might be pure. We might be vessels fit for the king's use. Lord, help us also to guard our hearts, only speak gracious words, keep our eyes focused on eternal things. And finally, Lord, give us insights into the choices that we have in life that we might make God-honoring, God-pleasing decisions as we ponder our path. In your name we pray. Amen.